A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport podcast with myself, Mike Finch, and uh, Professor Ross Tucker. And uh, we've been offline for a while because Ross has been travelling around uh, Portugal for a while on a, on a bike trip. I think that looked quite a lot of fun, a lot of mileage and a lot of uh, climbing done in that, what, five days? Yeah, I'd, I wouldn't what, have... What, was, I wouldn't what have, was the race? It was a race, wasn't it? I know, heavens, no. I don't do the racing thing. Um, <laughs> it was a ride. It was a tour. So basically the easy way, right? They take your bags ahead to the next stop. You nice. cycle there. So five days, 760K I didn't, ended up doing. 174 was the longest and 118 the shortest. And Portugal's a gem for cycling. I, I would not have made a list of 10 places I wanted to cycle in and have Portugal on that list. But now that I've done it, I'd recommend it. What what are the roads like? Are they nice and smooth? Yeah, mostly, mostly. There's some where it's sort of back roads and you can Mm. see they haven't been done for a number of years and there's a lot of cracks and holes and so on. Mm. But for the most part, really good and quiet. By the time we got to the end, I went for a ride on the... We finished on the Thursday. I went for another ride on the Saturday because one of our patrons and listeners recommended that I do this Mount Foyer, which is where the the Algarve, the tour of the Algarve finishes every year. It's it's like the highest climb in Algarve. So I'd say, off I go and I'm going to do this thing. And I realized that I'd gotten so lazy from never seeing a car that I was running stoplights and traffic circles and it was... (laughs) I mean, it was. I was. I had Sounds to. Like I had Nirvana to, for cycling. I had to rein myself in and say, "Hang on, you're not the only thing on the roads." Because for five days, that's what we were just about. It was really, it was really wonderful. Uh, the problem with that is when you do come back to civilization and reality, it's a bit of a shock, isn't no, it? No, I went. Uh, I went the other day, and I thought I was in a death match <laughs> against here in Cape Town. about a thousand cars. That was dreadful. <laughs> oh, horrendous. I'm going to have to go back then, right? I think for those of you who follow Ross and Strava, you would have noticed how bad a ride that was because I think he even commented on your Strava that it was cars and traffic lights. Cars and wind and just... <laughs> You've been no, spoiled. So I have been. It's, it's ruined me. And I was in Switzerland before that, which is even better. Yeah. I mean, it really is. It's... Yeah. Beautiful places to ride. I could not think of a better place to to cycle. Yeah. Mm. So a lot's happened in the last couple of weeks. Um, A marathon world record in Berlin with uh, Eliab Kipchoge. I mean, that was unbelievable. 30 seconds, which doesn't sound like a lot of a marathon, but it is a Mm. significant drop and was touching on the sub sub 201 mark at one point. Well, sub two. Well, yeah. Sub two. It was 59.51 at halfway. That's right. I mean, and he slowed, I think, from the 38th K to the 40th K, he slowed a bit. I think his slowest K was at 39 kilometers, which was a 3.12. Well, you, Otherwise, he was running 2.51s. You have time. to pay. I mean, you can't. Yeah. The guy who was with him, because he wasn't alone, which is even more amazing at halfway at mm-hmm. 59.50 pace, yeah. the guy who was with him ran 2.06. So that's a 66-something second half. Mm-hmm. That's what you expect. But Kipchoge did... Did the, what was it, 59.51 and then a 61.18, yeah. which is 202.36. And only him and Bekele have ever done faster than that pace for a marathon. So, I mean, he went too fast in the first half and still ran one of the fastest second halves. It's unbelievable. So he didn't really blow. No. He can't blow when you're running that fast mm. for the second half. No, but it does. I, th- I think it does show you that you can go out at 59.59 and at the moment the sub two is just not going to happen. Mm. You know, people can say, oh, if, if he'd run 201.09, even split. You know, 60-30, 60-30. People would say, yeah, that's quite close. 
but he gave it a shot. Mm. And he was actually, in the end, you know, if 30 seconds is a big improvement on the world record, which it is, then 69 off two is a lot. Mm. It's not going to happen soon. And the other thing to remember is that, and I can't, I can't believe he's still doing it because he's 37, 37 yeah. officially. Yeah, yeah. You, you think surely time's going to catch up. Um, no one, incidentally, in the top 100 has run a PB at 37. It's the first. Bekele was, sorry, Bekele is the only other guy and he was a little, he was a couple hundred days older. Uh, Kipchoge turns 38, I think, next month, actually, in mm. November. So I can't, I mean, I, I thought this before Sunday, <laughs> I can't see Kipchoge continuing to break records. Yeah, but I think a lot of people so, have said that, haven't they? Well, Even including, now. yeah, mm. me, me before this. I thought for sure 2019 would be the point at which he would have peaked and then and then start dropping off. But he's mm. defying age. You think, well, okay, shoes. Yeah. I can't see them making a shoe 30 seconds better than the 2019, 2018 version. Maybe they have. I don't know. That's the problem with the shoes again. But we don't want to re, um, turn that over one. that soil again. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, just unbelievable performance. And I was surprised that it happened. I didn't watch it because it was the first day of the cycling trip. But every stop, every chance I got, I was checking Twitter to see what was happening. And it's just... Yeah. Beyond belief, watching him bounce. I mean, just visually watching him sort of bouncing along on those shoes is Mm. quite remarkable. I mean, you can literally see, having watched um, the marathons in the last 10 years, you can visibly see the effect of Mm. the shoes in the way that he almost bounces off the road when you see him running at that pace. So that's quite remarkable. And and the woman woman also has a 215 from an 800 meter runner back in her former former life. And women's running has also, I mean, it's just, everything has been changed by the shoe, you know. So, again, we've spoken often about recalibration required. and But, again, it's this, this is the same guy. So then you look, at the, you look at the list now, and he's 32 seconds faster than Bekele, and the next guy is another minute back. Yeah, so, so he's yeah. so he's so much better than anyone else. McKelly won the grand ma- the master section at London Marathon. <laughs> yeah, that was an over forties world record. Unbelievable. Yeah. So I don't know. There's a there's a podcast in aging and performance and how yeah. you know these days you can have a conversation about how young these endurance champions are in cycling, and you can have a conversation about how old they are. Yeah, and it's like the rule book that I remember. You know, mid to late twenties you peak and you're done by early thirty. No. no way, that's not the case anymore. So that's pretty yeah. interesting as well. There's probably a handful of reasons So that, for that sort of magic spot where we talk about the prime of your athletic career has almost got wider. Mm. We see it in cycling. We've got Valverde and Pogaccio on the one side oh, and Valverde yeah. on the other. You know, it's, it is remarkable how they're, mm-hmm. they're able to extend their careers. But yeah, I suppose well, that's science and training to some extent. To it? some extent, that'll be part of it. Mm. A mate of mine jokingly and quite astutely said, Kipchoge must be unhappy that the shoes only came along when he was 34. Yes. <laughs> if he'd had those shoes at a 24-year-old, I wonder how fast he'd have been. Well, in fact, I actually interviewed Haley Gabrielassi when I went to Germany a couple of months ago and I asked him how does he feel about the new shoes and that's the one thing he said he was extremely upset that he retired before those shoes hit the market otherwise he reckoned he would have run sub two did he he commit to a number he committed to sub two if he'd had those shoes so he reckons because what did he end up doing he went two or three didn't he something like that so he's saying three minutes (laughs) <laughs> I think that's a bit much. I think that's that's a little bit of bravado, maybe. I, I still think it's a minute and 90 seconds. Yeah. I suppose the question is, is he a better athlete than 
Kipchoge and in the marathon. Thanks certainly to had tech. The, certainly had the track pedigree. Yeah, exactly. That was better. So. But thanks yeah. to tech, we'll never know. Yeah. Moving right on. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on, uh, this is what was described as the the uh, the course for the marathon at the Paris 2024 Olympics as a spectacular, demanding and unprecedented race. And that's for the Paris Olympics in 2024. Yeah. Why Why is it spectacular, demanding and unprecedented? Because they put a hill in it, heaven forbid. Oh my goodness. I know. The drama. I know, it's got a lot of vertical elevation. I think 400 odd meters. And there's there's two significant moments. The one comes from memory now, I don't have it in front of me, but about 15K, there's a 5K drag. And the map that they published is not the greatest resolution, but it looks it looks to me to climb about sort of 50 meters. Sorry, five, uh it goes from about 25 meters to 180, so 150 meters over 5K. That's 3%. Mm-hmm. And then they drop down a little bit, and then from 28 to 29, there's a 1K pull that looks to my eye to be about 5 6%. And that's, that's long and steep, more than they would encounter in any of the major marathons. I mean, Boston's got the heartbreak hills, but you, yeah, you know, that's not really. A you've hill. seen those, right? Yeah. You've done that. I mean, that's yeah. like a little. It's a little slope. It's a slope. Yeah. Um, I, I'm to be honest with you, I'm, I'm delighted that yeah, this is cool. happening because great. I, the one thing, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, I never understand, and notwithstanding the performance of Kipchoge and and at, at Berlin, there are the most imp- the most best part of watching uh, any kind of race is to watch the race itself. So for us to see you know, a race happening instead of somebody just chasing a good time, especially Olympic marathon. The, the, the Olympic marathon is not about time. It's about the race for me. And the fact that this course now is delivering a race that I think will be fascinating to watch. Yeah. And the hills so come, great. the hills come at really good times tactically because from 15 to 20 K is, is the five K drag. And it, as I've just pulled the profile up here, it does, it goes from about 30 meters above sea level to, to 183. So that's, fif- uh, that's 3%. Then there's about a 8, 9K gradual descent and then the very steep hill with 13K, 14K to go. And that's that's a good spot for a decisive move. And then once you peak that at 29K, there's about 3Ks of pretty severe descending. So tired legs at that speed and that eccentric load and then you finish along the River Seine towards Hotel Invalide. And that's going to change well, things. It's a well-named like, hotel for that course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they finish on the Esplanade de Invalide there in front of the Napoleon's tomb. And I reckon, A, it's in August, so that's going to be maybe slightly warmer than most are accustomed to, plus the hills. I reckon there's some people who'd be looking at that and saying, I'm, I can prepare smartly for this, and I can get a jump on guys who on a London, Berlin, Chicago would beat me. Yep. I'm going to actually turn the tables on them because yeah. of the route. Everyone's going to be behind Kipchoge, <laughs> assuming he runs it. Yeah. But the rest will be interesting. Yeah. Because it's not just about pure speed anymore. Mm, yeah, exactly. Cool. No, it's a cool. So it's exciting. I'm, glad, I mean, I'm actually seeing, glad to see. It's almost, they're almost doing it like you would prepare for a recycling event. Yeah. You, yeah, you need to cool. put a hill in to decide who wins the race. Yeah. If anything, I could have moved the hills 5K later. Then it would have been really spicy. Yeah. Or but, finish finish on the hill even better. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, and it also takes in all the monuments. I mean, it's going to be visually, yeah. visually spectacular. Mm. Can't wait. Great, looking mm. forward to that. Mm. Now, this is an interesting story. I know Ross has been doing all these stories coming via Ross today because he's been uh, trolling the the uh, interwebs for some interesting stuff. And this is a classic one, a cheating scandal in angling. I know. And when That's... I first thought about the story, I thought, how do you cheat in angling? And when I found out what they were doing, it was obvious. But how do they do it? Well, they took, <laughs> it, was in a, it was in an angling competition in Ohio, $30,000 yes. prize. Eh? So yeah. this is not chump change. And these two guys who'd apparently been winning more than they should have. That was the first sign of suspicion. I bring that up because it's 
It's Jacob Ranian and Chase Kaminsky. That's right. Uh, classic, yeah. classic sign of like dominance equals suspicion, even yes. in angling, apparently. And so they're a little bit suspicious and they bring their fish up for the weigh in at the end and it gets weighed and everyone's eyebrows lift and they say that. And the guy who's doing the weighing, the organizer, he's got a lot of experience weighing fish. He says, these don't look like 15 kilogram weights, you know, like because they were 33 pounds or something. He says, no, this, they look like 15 to 20s. They weigh 30 something. Let's cut them open. <laughs> so, so they cut them open and they remove about eight pounds worth of lead balls that have been hidden inside other filleted fish so that they didn't knock about on the inside. I mean, that's and everyone starts jeering and, and, and it, it confirmed, as I gather from reading articles. There's a video of this, by the way. You can find it on TikTok of, of the weighing and you can see the reaction of the crowd and everyone gets unhappy and so forth. They haven't commented, but I mean, how do you deny mm-hmm. the fact that your fish have got these these lead balls inside them. They're literally on the video, they show him cut them open and he dumps the balls inside a crate. It's, it's hilarious. It is, actually. <laughs> what we'll do is we'll make sure we put all the links um, in, the, in the show notes. You can actually look at the story on, uh, on Sky News where it actually is quite a well-written piece, a bit, of, a bit tongue-in-cheek and a bit of fun. But yeah, there's, there's, lots, less, of, there's lots of puns available. Lots of puns. <laughs> it's a journalist's dream, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, I saw another interesting piece that they needed... They needed, I forget what it was to win. I think they needed about 15, 16 pounds to win the overall title. Mm. <laughs> they, they way overdid the lead balls because they came in at 33. <laughs> if, they'd, if they'd gotten their dosage right, they would have probably got away with it because then it would have been, mm, okay, it's two pounds oh. heavier than it should have been. It's but, a big bone fish. But they went way over what they needed to. Right. <laughs> and so, so they weren't particularly... But, the, but the, the, the suspicion is there that they've been cheating for a long time because they'd been winning many competitions and the way it's told in the story is that and i can imagine this is the case i've never caught a fish in my life um but there's a great deal of luck involved so you you shouldn't win regularly yeah and and they were so everyone was a bit suspicious and then had their suspicions confirmed i can imagine that if you're i mean for those of you watch reality tv there's a show about tuna fishermen and um I think it's off the sort of east coast of America, and uh, they they're really catching some big fish. A couple of lead weights, you would never be able to spot those in the stomach of those uh, fish. Yeah. But I guess they do cut them open and fillet them, so you would spot yeah. something suspicious. So, so here it is. They needed sixteen point eight nine pounds to claim team of the year. Their weight was thirty three point nine one. Sorry guys, so they literally yeah. doubled the cheating yeah. dosage. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, it's 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 funny because it's just the human condition is you is we cheat. You know what I mean? Like that's what I it is. And, 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 there's an, and there's another sport you wouldn't necessarily associate with cheating, which we'll get onto next, I suppose, yeah. in chess. But it's it's like when you offer money and prestige and pride, humans <laughs> humans will cheat. Hmm. So unless you're, che- I mean, a couple of weeks back on our last podcast, we spoke about the Navy SEALs. Okay, that's more than just a little team of the year fishing trophy at stake, but hmm. they do it there too, and they do it in all sports, and it's just the way of life, unfortunately. Yeah. So a couple of other things talking about cheating, boxing, doping scandals developing at the moment as well. A bunch of Portuguese cyclists banned. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as you say, it's just, it's rampant, isn't it? I, I mean, there's money involved. I mean, the boxing one especially, you know, it's a fight between two guys whose fathers were also legendary boxers, Ben and Eubank Jr., Chris Eubank Jr., whose father actually was involved in a fight that caused severe brain damage to an opponent, and so was Connor Benz. Connor Ben then fails a test for something called clomiphene, which is a a selective estrogen receptor modulator and basically it's it's used to treat infertility in women 
but in men it elevates testosterone levels because it, it, it messes about with your normal because you can imagine your testosterone levels are tightly controlled it's not like a random system mm. <laughs> there's a homeostatic balanced loop that regulates it and what's what i've subsequently heard from a number of people is that when you are doping with testosterone your body stops making its own. And so when you come off the testosterone cycle, you have to switch yours back on. And this is one way that you might do that. Or you just use this drug to elevate your testosterone levels by itself. But either way, this Ben's A sample comes back positive. And so now the fight's in jeopardy, and it's a big fight. But now they're saying, no, the fight can go ahead because the B sample hasn't been tested yet. <laughs> so they're going to proceed with it. And, and Chris Eubank Jr., who's the opponent, is saying he's happy to go with it. Well, because there's money involved. Exactly. Yeah, it's just an amazing story, and and so there's. It doesn't two, matter who wins as long as they get paid. That's the that's the problem, you know. It's yeah. all on the all on show up for the big fight, and yeah. you know, in boxing, this is this is a big deal. The other thing at stake here is that um, Eubank Junior has to come down a lot in weight to make the fight, mm. and uh, maybe they'll reach a compromise. <laughs> <laughs> well, so 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 there's there's significant safety concerns here. It's mm. it's just. There's an article this morning, Rick Broadbent of the Times has written a piece on it and written about just how distasteful the whole thing is. And it is. It's 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 like you're talking about guys who are going to go into a ring and literally try and <laughs> beat mm. each other up with consent, of course. And now you've got doping in there. You've got drastic weight cuts going on. Weakness is a consequence of that. Mm. I mean, this is not... You talk mm. about safety in sport and at what point does our entertainment become mm. actually... <laughs> I suppose that's where the authorities around boxing need to make a stand and, and show some leadership, I guess. And even there, the British Board of Control for boxing wants the fight not to proceed. Mm. I think I've got that right. There's, because there's conflict there. So, I'd, in fact, let me not attribute the wrong action to them in this in this regard. But but, it, would make, it would make sense for them to be involved in that and not let it go ahead. Yeah, so the British Board of Boxing Control is saying that the fight should be prohibited as it is not in the interests of boxing. And they told the promoters not to proceed with the fight. But they're saying, well, the UK anti-doping has tested him and found him to be negative. There's two anti-doping authorities, by the way. There's one called VADA, which is the Voluntary Anti-Doping Association, okay. as opposed to the involuntary the one, which one. is UCAD. UCAD is saying our tests are negative. Both boxers want to fight. All okay. Happy happy days. Let's go. It's just... Sure. And then, and then you, as I say, you lay on upon that the, the weight the weight cutting requirements. There's a, apparently a clause where one of the fighters has agreed not to gain too much weight after the weigh-in. Mm. <laughs> so everyone's aware of the risks, but we'll go. Because the money's enough. Yeah. Yeah, it's just bad. The Portuguese riders, seven yeah. Portuguese riders banned for doping offences. I mean, there are some, there are some pretty big names in there, um, and it's it's weird to see so many caught at the same at the same time. Well, it's all from one team, and that team is now its license taken away. Yeah. In fact, that was in July. There was a raid. Goes to show the good old for all the good anti-doping does, yeah. the good old police raid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Blows things open, always delivers, and that's what happened here. So the team that's won many of those races in Portugal has had a number of its riders caught with banned substances ranging from corticosteroids onwards. And it, it's interesting because I remember seeing an analysis of the climbing performances in the Tour of Portugal, and they are every bit as good as the Tour de France, if not better. <laughs> Yet you don't see climbers regularly winning Tour de France stages from those teams, or from Portugal even. And it's simply because there's a different approach to anti-doping. And they just... So that's what's come to a head here now. And maybe it's a turning point where anti-doping in Portugal starts to actually filter out the behaviors. But mm -hmm. it's it's long, I think, been known that there is rampant doping among some of those 
particularly sub elite yeah or you know the not the not the pro teams the elite um tour teams and I mean, it says the longest suspension was reserved for Jao ja Rodriguez, obviously a pretty big name in the mm, world. He won the he won, he won the Volta Algarve, yeah. um, and uh, he was banned for seven years. Yeah, so that's so yeah, that's pretty much the end of his career. Exactly, he's already a pretty much a veteran anyway. Right, yeah. and then speaking of doping, we spoke about it a while back. Nairo Quintana became the first athlete to be suspended for tramadol use. Yes, <laughs> because the UCI was the only sport that put it on its regulated list and I'm not even going to say banned mm. but now Wild has banned it right and so it's not just a recommendation anymore it's no longer a recommendation it's a it's a banned and it will be banned from next year now there's right. a question and Renato Tironi wrote in again on Patreon and, and said well why why wait and I think that's just an artifact of how they run they've designed their list to be updated coincident with calendar years but you know the interesting thing about that is nothing else has changed other than Quintana being caught there's no new evidence that it works. There's no new evidence that it's harmful. The same conversations are being had now in 2022 as were being had in 2016-17. Yeah. And now it's enough to ban it. Why? Yeah. So it's, it just it just comes it across like as... It's just a bit of pressure now. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's profile pressure. It's knee-jerk. It's, you know, there goes the horse, close the barn door, you know, kind of thing. Anyway, it's good that it's been banned. It's just weird. And it's not weird. It's kind of par for the course that it took a case to, mm. you know, tip the seesaw in the direction it should have gone a long time ago yeah and the final loose segment piece I mean before we get on to some rather interesting uh, interviews which we'll get to very shortly is uh, some a new paper suggesting that transgender women retain advantage up to 14 years after mm. they've had that transgender I mean this is obviously something we talked about a lot on the podcast yeah. but there's always this discussion about how long does the advantage um, last and yeah. for 14 years is now pretty significant yeah and, and the thing about this paper and, that, and the reason I'm not super excited about it it's, it's gotten a little bit of media coverage in the last few days is it's a cross-sectional study which basically means they've assessed them now on average 14 and a half years after they've suppressed testosterone as opposed to the dozen studies or so that we've discussed in the past where they followed them from day zero onwards mm. so mm. Th that version is like watching the movie develop yeah. What, what this is is effectively a photograph midway or halfway or towards the end of the movie. And so you don't know what they were like at the start. You only know what they look like now. But, but what is clear is that what they look like now is still significantly heavier, significantly more muscle mass, significantly stronger, and a higher absolute VO2. What's, so that's oxygen capacity, cardiovascular capacity yeah. in a sense. Which is kind of what, we, what you've always alluded to is that yeah, the oranges are, are there. And a lot of them are related to size. And when you look at the VO2, for instance, relative to mass, then the VO2 max per kilogram per milliliter, moles per kilogram per minute is the same between them. So relatively, they look the same. In absolute terms, different. Now, that's got implications for the performance advantage in sports in a different way. Some sports, relative matters a lot more because it's weight limited, mm -hmm. cycling up a hill, running, for instance. Other sports, rowing, swimming, I dare say, cycling track cycling on a flat road the absolute one might be more but for me the the more interesting finding is the strength advantage is retained and it's about 19 percent their hand grip strength muscle mass is maintained and so it's not this is not of all the studies this is probably quite low in terms of strength because of that cross-sectional nature but it's a puzzle piece in the mm. same picture that we've been looking at for the last few years so that's mm. why it was noteworthy 
Now, our next segment, we've got a very interesting interview with one of our most popular guests here on the Science of Sport podcast, Sean Ingle, who's the chief sports writer for The Guardian. And uh, he talks to us a little bit about uh, a cheating scandal in the world of chess. So it's not often we get a chance to talk about chess on the Science of Sport podcast. And uh, Sean Ingle, our favourite journalist from The Guardian in London, who we've often interviewed on the podcast, uh, welcome back. What is happening in the controversial world of chess at the moment? Well, there's uh, been a cheating scandal, which I'm sure your listeners would have heard of, that that started last month when uh, Magnus Carlsen, the world champion, walked out of a prestigious tournament for the first time in his career. And he made some very cryptic remarks about cheating. Um, And since then, we've had, a, a, I guess, a drama that's been part soap opera, part whodunit, as people have tried to work out how much cheating was involved, you know, and so on. There's been outlandish theories. We've heard of vibrating anal beads has entered the uh, the popular discourse. And uh, <laughs> and as and, uh, and as we speak, um, there is still a lot of uncertainty uh, um, and speculation. But uh, but a couple of days ago, Chess.com, which is the world's biggest website, produced a 72-page dossier where they sort of outlined cheating at, at top-level chess, particularly involving. Um, Castle's opponent the day, uh, a guy called Hans Neiman, who's a 19-year-old American. Yeah, I, 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 I was on vacation mostly, so I sort of caught headlines only, which is why we wanted you for the detail. As I, as I understand it, most of it has happened in online matches. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Yeah, so so Carson lost this game in the Singfield Cup, which is a, a half a million dollar tournament. Uh, it, I think what spooked Carlson were two things. One that Neiman said after the game that he'd um, he'd sort of been working on this exact series of moves that Carlson ended up playing that morning, which I think Carlson was surprised by. And also, um, Carlson clearly had conversations with other players who had expressed their concerns that they thought um, Neiman was cheating and. Um, so a day later, he admitted he cheated twice as a 12-year-old and a 16-year-old, but but only online. And he sort of insisted he never cheated on, uh, over the board and had even offered to, to play naked to sort of prove that he wasn't hiding an electromagnetic device or such like. But yeah, you're right. Most of the cheating uh, has been uh, online rather than over the board. I, w- I would have thought that online chess cheating would be rampant and widespread, especially with $500,000 purses. Well, this tournament was uh, over the board, but there have been some big, big tournaments uh, with, with big, with big money online as well. And at the very top level, what they do, they they make you install cameras um, sort of around the room, which should help a bit. Um, and also, every game goes through uh, cheat detection software. Now, um, the various websites they don't sort of tell you exactly what they're doing but clearly if you play the top move of the computer every single time if you do things like click onto another browser which could have um you know a chess engine open uh if you perhaps take unusual amount of times over certain moves they could all be indicators that you are potentially cheating uh, and in these very top online tournaments where there are cameras they can you would hope it, um, see if there was anything nefarious going on 
Now, the Wall Street Journal published something which is either the, the what, what you just alluded to from chess.com or is that something separate where they've forensically showed that this American player has cheated more often than the twice that he claimed to have done? Yeah, now that was the same report that chess.com okay. clearly, clearly given that uh, in advance uh, to, to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, interestingly, uh, chess.com quoted sort of the world's leading anti-cheating expert, Ken Rogan, who supported their verdict that, that Aneeman had cheated over 100 times. But they did also accept there was a lack of concrete statistical evidence that um, Neiman had cheated either in his game against Magnus or in any other over-the-board uh, games. So there is this sort of, uh, sort of, we are in a bit of a limbo here where he's accepted cheating on the one hand, but sort of say, well, it was a, a while ago. Uh, Chester come have come back and said, actually, it was a lot more times, but even they accept that nothing over the board and also nothing um, since 2020 that they can categorically say uh, 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 he's cheated. And the authorities, they're saying we'll investigate. Is there any timeline on when that may happen? Yeah, well, uh, not officially, but unofficially, I've been told sort of around the next three months or so. So we're looking around, I guess, by the end of the uh, of, of the year. How, how do they cheat? I mean, is it, it, you alluded to the fact that it's to do with using software to plan moves. Is, is that what the cheating mechanism is, as far as you know? Well, I mean, there are various ways you can do. It. I guess we'll start with the, the cases that have been caught. Um, the, probably the most famous case was a, a Latvian grandmaster called Igor Rausis. Now, he um, was, was getting quite old and his ranking had been coming down. But then he started to win a bunch of games and uh, that aroused a bunch of suspicion. And um, eventually one tournament put a camera in the toilet and they saw that what he'd done was he'd, he'd, he'd stuck his phone uh, in the, the toilet paper holder. And every time there was a crucial move that he had to make, he, he'd go along and, you know, uh, um, um, unzip the, uh, the the toilet paper from its holder and then and get to his phone. So that's how he cheated and they caught him doing that. There was another famous case at the uh, 2010 Olympiad where a French player, Sebastian Feller, was playing. And he had two assistants, one of whom was online uh, monitoring his game and looking at what the computer was saying. And another who was actually in the playing hall or nearby who would actually walk um, they had to establish a code. So we'd walk to a certain table and that would indicate a certain square on the board. So uh, if you wanted to move your piece from B2 to B4, he would he would he would then you know walk to those two tables and that that's how they cheated that way. When it comes to Neiman um and this sort of wild theory about vibrating anal beads, the theory here is that uh, if you're a top chess grandmaster. I've spoken to sort of top players about this. Sometimes all you need is a sense that there is something in the position. So there's, it might not be obvious, but if you're told, look, there's a key killer move here that gives you a big advantage, most of the top players will find it. So, you know, if you had something that vibrated or buzzed you, that would be, be one thing. The other way it could potentially happen is some sort of Morse code or some sort of, you know, Beep, beep might mean B if he beeps twice. And then the next one might beep might indicate the, the, the number of squares the piece moves from. So there are potentially ways to do it, but uh, I, I'm not quite, I'm not convinced uh, it's that easy to do, certainly in over, over the board play. If I, if I understand correctly, Magnus Carlsen, now the world number one, probably the most famous chess player right now. And he's playing this game, he makes one move and then quits. That, that's how it unfolded. Um, there were actually there were two games. So the first time he plays is at the Sigfield Cup, which is uh, the prestigious um, 
tournament uh, that, that that's uh, over the board in, uh, in St. Louis in America. Then a week later, they're playing another tournament, the Meltwater Champions Generation Cup, I think it was. And uh, they were they were scheduled to play again. So um, uh, Neiman plays his first move. Magnus plays his first move. Neiman plays his second move. Uh, the Magnus resigns and disconnects. Um, yeah, yeah that's what I was talking about. Yeah. Now, for, for, for a guy at that profile and that level to make that public a statement against it, he must know. Well, in his own mind, he must be absolutely convinced because if, if Neiman's exonerated, then Carlson has effectively um, very publicly accused him of something falsely. He, he has to know. Well, I think, I, I guess if you are told that so you're up against a cheat, even if uh, that person isn't cheating in that game against you, you perhaps think they are. So that uh, someone like Carlson, who, I mean, I've interviewed him a few times and I think he is, he's brutally honest about himself and his play. You know, he praises opponents a lot and he's very self-critical. So I absolutely believes that he thinks something is fishy going on, whether he can absolutely prove it. I don't know. But as I said earlier, I think that combination of, of being of, of Neiman knowing or apparently seeming to know the sort of the, the sort of 15 or so moves that, that Magnus thought, you know, the, the line he was going to take him into in that first game, absolutely through him and with that knowledge um that he knew that i think neiman had cheated online in the past he put two and two together and, and whether he's got the right answer or not we, we still don't know for sure it's bold i mean you've got a boxing scandal where a guy's failed the test and his opponent is saying he's happy to fight it's unusual for a for a player to make a public stand against an opponent right no absolutely i think i think what's also quite interesting this i mean we all come from and we all follow sports that are more sort of aligned to the, you know, the world anti-doping um, code. And uh, there we sort of know that actually, you know, if I take EPO and I'm caught, it's probably a four-year ban. If I do it again, it's probably an eight-year ban, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in chess, it's a lot more Wild West with uh, companies like chess.com or our private companies. So what they've effectively done in the past, uh, and their report essentially says that four of the top 100 in the world have admitted uh, cheating to them and 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 dozens more title players have as well what they've effectively done in the past is banned them quietly shadow banned them and said look if you confess we'll let you play again so they've got a bunch so that is a very different and and so the punishment is never made public there's no real official uh sanction for cheating um there is an over the ball tournament uh but that's very been very rare so we're in this sort of strange situation where it's not absolutely obvious um, you know what the sanctions should be, and and certainly for someone like Neiman, if he cheats at twelve and sixteen, what should the punishment be? So it's very different to say um, the, the the wider code, really. Mm. As for Neiman, best case now is that an official well, report he, exonerates him, but I mean his his reputation's done. Well, he was back playing uh, last night in the um, the U.S. Championship, and he, and he won his game against uh, Christoph Yu, a fifteen-year-old. Um, and afterwards, he sort of said, I'm letting my chest do the talking. Uh, I'm not going to let this affect me. So it, it's an extraordinary case because Neiman is someone that is he's 19 now, but he's actually developed as a top, top player very late, which raises for chess.com raises statistical mm. flags. I think for the other players rate raise flags because generally uh, progress is never in a sort of never, never linear, but it, it, it he's sort of had peer, very fallow peers and suddenly shot up by a huge amount. And generally, you know, even uh, the top youngsters that end up being at 2,700 plus level who are super geniuses don't tend to do that. 
Mm. So he is a statistical anomaly. Um, but I guess unless uh, he is caught definitively cheating over the board, we'll probably continue as we are. Uh, I mean, chess.com have banned him online, but he's allowed to play, uh, you know, in other tournaments online and also, um, yeah, in matches in real life. So watch this space. Yeah, I'm going to watch this and wait for the movie. So thanks so much, Sean Ingle, and always lovely to hear from a man who is very close to uh, many of the controversies in sports, and uh, always lovely to have him on the show. So our next guest in our interview for the day uh, comes the way of a gentleman by the name of Professor Stuart Phillips, um, who is a professor and Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in the Department of Kinesiology at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. And uh, the reason why we're talking to Stu is because we've been wanting to do this for quite some time, but... He's going to talk to us very much around the very controversial subject of protein mm. and its role in sport and how it works. Why is it such a talking point, sport and protein? It's trendy, but why? So when I was doing honours, we, we did obviously a lot on biochemistry of exercise and so on. And I remember you do like two weeks of work on carbs and then two week block of lectures on fat and about one morning on protein. <laughs> I remember this and this was a twist 20 years ago now, obviously, so it's a while. But at that time, protein was neglected because I think most people were kind of like, okay, it's the third of the three macronutrients. We know that it's important because it's enzymes, it's muscle, it's structural. It has these roles. Stuart will talk to us about those. But we don't – it's hard to study for one thing because you have to do some pretty gnarly collection of all kinds of samples from the body in order to understand what's really happening with nitrogen and amino acids. And secondly, I think a lot of people put it in the, I'm sorry, so because of that, people put it in the too hard box. <laughs> mm. But it's gained a lot of traction recently because people have started to say, actually, well, let's, let's focus on protein a little bit more and talk a little bit about it. And every person who's training, whether it's for health or performance, and whether that performance is endurance or strength or muscle gain, is now interested in protein because that's literally what makes you. <laughs> yeah. Literally, it what makes building. you. Yeah, absolutely. So we talk, and, and then, then concurrent, there's been this increased focus in recovery. You know, we're breaking down the body with training. To get better, we must recover, and that's protein-related as well. So I think those things have driven this little micro-industry, and people like Stuart, who've been studying this stuff for three decades, have become more and more in demand because people recognize how important it is. So I've heard him speak at a conference once or twice, I think it is, two, two times, and his delivery is always very simple and straightforward. He's a no-nonsense simple clear thinker you know accurate mm. and precise and tried for a long time to get him on most of the time it was us who couldn't accommodate him in canada but eventually we got him and, and you know a couple of patrons had asked about protein special shout out to philippe tukala who'd asked a few questions about it and hopefully we cover what you want to know in this interview well it's a very enlightening interview with Stu phillips and uh, here it is Well, Stu, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. I know that uh, Ross has been trying to get you on our podcast for uh, a few months now, and uh, it's really lovely having you on the show. Where, where are you talking to us from Ontario, I believe? Yeah, I am. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the show first. Uh, yeah, McMaster University, so we're in Hamilton. Uh, I think most people would say we're about uh, 40 kilometers outside of Toronto. That, that would be where most people would identify uh, okay. geographically where we are. 
Now, when uh, when we decided to do this podcast, and Ross said he's going to be talking about protein, and um, the first thing that comes to mind is that if there's anything that's been a buzzword in this in this sports world in the last probably ten years, it's about it's been about protein. And uh, I know for myself, working on magazines like Runners World and Bicycling, you know, there's every month we have a some story. It's either about protein or it's about carbohydrate, and uh, it, the the science changes all the time. And uh, as yeah. you I'm sure you have had this in the in, in Canada as well as we've had in south africa so many so much stuff around keto diets and protein based mm-hmm. diets yeah. that sort of thing and of course protein supplements which of course are, are massive and uh, the, i will say though that protein is is both simultaneously like the fashionable um sort of trendy macronutrient mm-hmm. but also for a very long time the forgotten one it's almost yeah. like people said all right carbs fat yeah. and make the make the rest protein just yeah. how much protein do i need whatever you don't get from the others have that so it's it's a funny like dichotomy of both neglected and hyped and i think for us in south africa we've obviously had a very close uh, and ross particularly has a close relationship who has had a close relationship with professor tim noakes who in the day was a big carbohydrate fan particularly in athletes and then suddenly he became a banter and a keto diet and that sort of thing so we've had massive shifts uh, here in south africa around that but i I guess my opening question as as a non-scientific person is there is so much hype around protein maybe it's a, a general question about is the hype warranted (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think your, your characterization of, you know, things going in and out of vogue, you know, when I first started uh, doing sort of sports science, and so I mean, I've been at McMaster now for 25 years, and it's sort of, you know, I know, well, I say that to a lot of people, and they're like, where did the time go, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, my first ACSM meeting, I went in, and, and, and every other symposium was how to carb, how to carb how many, you know, what did you have to drink to get these amount of carbohydrates in? And so, you know, carbohydrates had their moment in the sun. And I think uh, Louise Burke probably sort of described it best is that we went maybe overboard on on how much carbohydrate you needed without uh, tailoring the prescription to the intensity and duration of the sport, et cetera. So now we've gotten a bit more refined. And then carbohydrates took a bit of a backseat. And then it was all about fat. And, you know, even though we went through I call them the fat phobic 80s where, you know, fat was bad, carbs were good. Uh, uh, and then all of a sudden fat was good. Uh, so now it's protein's turn. Uh, we, we, our, our time to shine, so to speak. Uh, I mean, I think the, the basic distinction to make for your audience is to remind everybody that carbohydrates and fats, you know, 99%, they're fuel, right? You're putting them in a system and you're burning them. Uh, there's a small structural role and probably developmental role for certain essential fatty acids, long chain fatty acids. Protein's fundamentally different. It's it's a it's a substrate that's used to to make things. It's used to make, you know, structural proteins, enzymes, you know, everything that has a sort of a solid structure in your body, including your bones. And and there's a news flash, your your bones are 40% by composition protein. It's not just a stick of chalk. Um, <laughs> so, you, you know, uh, you have to use it. The, the difference is, you know, unlike fat, where we have a you know, seemingly endless capacity to store that, uh, and carbohydrates, which we have a limited capacity for storage, uh, you can't store protein. So it's not like you can eat it and then sort of stack it away somewhere and then release it at a later time. And I know some people sort of have theories about that, but if there is a pool of stored quote unquote protein it's very small um and it, i i doubt whether you, you know anybody can really tap into it if you're really stressed then yeah we break down our muscle and 
you know, that's where uh, we, we really get into trouble. But uh, so the, there's a fundamental difference in, you know, that's pretty much what's occupied my time for the last 25, 30 years. Mm. I what, guess we, sorry, Mike, go ahead. Can I just, uh, I mean, it's maybe an overly technical question, but when you talk about proteins being the structural components of things, maybe you can explain how proteins do become structural components of things. So you ingest some protein and yep. then your your muscles get bigger, your bones get stronger. How, yep. how does that process actually happen? Or you get fatter, but or you get fatter. Well, well it, get it, it's like everything. I mean, if you eat too much of anything, you, you, you're going to put on weight. That's the way. I mean, that's a fundamental. You know, we we can skirt around thermodynamics in some sort of sense, <laughs> but uh, that's kind of how it works um, in my mind, anyway. Not everybody's. I, I I'll admit. I mean, I think the uh, you know the easiest analogy and the one that I use most often and people can kind of grab onto is to say. Uh, you know, proteins are made up. It's it's like bricks uh, of a wall, and if it's our skin, if it's our our muscle, it it, it doesn't really matter. Um, and there are twenty bricks, and we can make eleven of those bricks in our body. We can we can manufacture them ourselves from just things that we ingest. We don't necessarily have to have the protein in our diets, but nine of those bricks are what we call essential. Uh, and the bricks, of course, are, you know, we, we call them amino acids and they're strung together in a long chain and the chain folds in on itself and it eventually makes a, a protein structure that when you sort of stick them all together, uh, then you begin to build up muscle proteins, you begin to build up skin proteins, liver proteins, blood proteins, etc. Uh, so, so if you like, uh, we need to have protein coming in in our diet every day to provide those essential bricks, those nine essential bricks. And when we don't get those, then we're going to break down certain structures to provide those for, for other processes. And you know, the, again, the analogy I used to say is that there's always, there's a brick wall. And if you want the brick wall to function well, you're gonna have a guy at one end putting bricks into the wall and a guy at the other end taking out the, the bad or damaged bricks. And that's kind of like a constant, what we, we call it turnover. Mm. Um, and it keeps the uh, the bricks or excuse me, the walls in, in tip top shape. And everybody goes, you know, the walls. And I'm like, well, imagine your muscles a wall, but your skin is the same type of thing. And we're turning over those proteins on, on, on a constant basis to keep everything functioning as, as, as well as it can. Yeah, so this was going to be my question, but yours was better, actually. I like, <laughs> I like the mechanism stuff, but we're getting to the same point now. And I'll pick your analogy up. So the role of diets is to deliver bricks to those brick layers and breakdowners, whatever you want to call them. The, yeah, the, yeah. I suppose the the million dollar question is how many bricks do we need to bring daily? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I know I that's sure. a that's an almightily complex answer because it depends on the function of the wall and what you're trying to achieve with it. And are we trying yeah. to gain weight? Are we trying to be healthy? Are we trying to yeah. you know there's there's all sorts of health and performance implications. So it'll take yeah. a while to answer, but that's the question. Yeah, it, it, it I mean that's the one again, you know, 25, 30 years of doing that. So and, that's the million so dollar I, question. I think when I got into this, you know, and, and this is sort of maybe the, 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 step, the step back picture and to say to people that uh, the recommended dietary allowance or the RDA, uh, you know, it's called various things around the world, but it's generally set at about 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. Um, and, you know, when I first got into this, all I heard was the RDA is sufficient. You know, you don't need to eat more protein. Uh, even athletes who are working really, really hard, they, they don't need more protein. The RDA is just fine. 
Um, you know, without getting too deep into the weeds, the, the recommended dietary allowance or the recommended nutrient intake, whatever it's called, uh, is it, in my opinion and, and the opinion of several other people, it's just not sufficient for athletes. Mm. Um, and we could sort of dichotomize it into say, you know, endurance athletes and resistance trained athletes. And I think, you know, most people think, well, if you're resistance training, you're trying to gain muscle, you're trying to maintain muscle. So you actually need more protein. The, the reality is, is that in just about every experiment that's being done with, with endurance athletes, mainly because they're burning a lot of fuel, um, they tend to burn, even though it's a small amount of what they do burn or oxidize for fuel, they, they, they burn some amino acids. And in doing so, then they, they have an increased requirement for uh, these are the essential or what we call the essential bricks or essential amino acids. So they need to eat more protein to get that back into their system to keep things working efficiently. Mm. Uh, people who lift weights, yeah, absolutely. They probably have a, you know, a small increase in need, uh, but they benefit from a, a little bit more protein. The numbers uh, have changed and, you know, my targets have changed based on science. And I know that tends to upset people because you, know, you can't give a definitive answer. But I, I stop short of, you know, some really extraordinarily high intakes and say about double the RDA or about 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day uh, is a level that appears to cover both endurance athletes, even with increased needs for uh, protein because of oxidation and resistance trained athletes with increased protein needs because they're trying to maintain and or gain muscle. Beyond that, it, 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 you know, your body can absorb tons of protein. I think that that's really a message that people maybe forget. They, they sort of think there's a, a, a finite capacity to absorb protein and that's not, like you can absorb lots and lots. I've had athletes mm. consuming four and five times what I'm recommending and they'll absorb it, but they just can't use it. You, like you don't have a place to put it away. And when that happens, then everything from fish all the way to mammals has involved a, a mechanism of getting rid of nitrogen. If you're a fish, it's ammonia. If you're a bird, it's uric acid. If you're a mammal, it's, it's urea. So you either use it or you pull the nitrogen off and, and you, you, you lose it. So mm. about 1.6 is the that's the, the short answer to with a long explanation, but about 1.6, I think. Within the field of, of, I suppose, generally nutrition, but specifically this area, that RDA probably dates back to 70s, 80s, 40 years old now? Oh, yeah, at, at least that. I, I, yeah, it, it's, it's sort of this, uh, I mean, it, the way it's treated, and, and, and I, I don't know that it will change. Uh, so I've, I've sort of got on a campaign to, Instead of saying recommended dietary allowance, I, you know, so it's, I don't think it should be recommended. And I think you should be allowed to eat more. If we just called it the minimum dietary intake, in other words, it covers needs, then I, 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 I actually, I could, I could stop railing on about this and, and walk away and go, okay, mission accomplished. Um, but until that happens, I don't think it's really uh, doing justification to the, you know, that as an intake. And then it becomes one of, not just need, but what would you consume to have optimal health, or if you're an athlete, optimal performance or or uh, optimal function, for example. Yeah, I was I was going to ask you that. I mean, if we defined athletes who are training a lot, let's say twelve or more hours a week, in some instances twenty hours plus, by how much would that go up from the one point six, or is your one point six 
targeted at them? In other words, yeah. Per, I mean, I think one point six. I think one point six covers it for the most part. Ten, even ten and twelve hours a week. I think the point is, and I just sort of, I was on a podcast recently with Chris Gardner from Stanford, and he was sort of making the point that all athletes are are, are getting enough protein. And you know, and in my experience, looking at food records and and uh, you know just dealing with athletes over the years. If they're covering their energy needs and they're mm. consuming a, a you know a mixed diet, and I'll just say you know so they they have to be a little bit judicious about what they eat. They can't just be mindlessly eating. They're generally getting enough protein as long as they're covering their energy needs. Now you guys know as well as I do that there are groups of athletes, particularly aesthetic sport oriented, and uh, some groups of female athletes that are they really restrict what they eat. And those athletes can get into problems, but if it's sort of, you know, uh, I can use the analogy on your podcast and it's my, it's my favorite sport. So, you know, if there are a bunch of rugby players, they're eating a lot of food and, and they're, they're getting more than enough protein. It, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's a fait accompli, but one of the things is to, to emphasize is that the RDA is, is, is not optimal for those athletes. And that's maybe different than the question mm. of how much do you need and what is optimally, you know, um, there for, you know, you to take advantage and, and perform well. And that's a different question. And it's a, it's much tougher to answer to be, to be fair. So, so if I'm at the risk of oversimplifying my, as a, if I'm a training, training athlete or a coach of an athlete who's training priority, number one is, is the energy demands of what I'm doing in training. And it's fuel for the work required to quote Graham close. We interviewed him, I think last season. Oh, okay. Great. Be, beyond that, the, the macronutrient com composition of that diet obviously matters. Mm -hmm. If I have, if I have protein, but insufficient energy, I'm not doing enough. And if I have mm -hmm. insufficient energy, but a minimum or, or, or your targeted amount of protein, then I've got more than enough and have more protein is not beneficial necessarily. It's way it's potentially wasteful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, to your point, uh, you know, we've known for a long, a long time that if you don't meet your energy needs, you, you will begin to, you know, pull protein out of stores, you, you're going to put yeah. a stress on the system. Uh, you know, the fuel, your fuel needs are, it, that's fat and carbohydrate. Uh, the, the protein comes out of the system in order to sort of make up for differences. And, you know, the, the fundamental truism is that, amino acids that are released from we'll call it storage but the reality is that's going to be your muscle because mm. it's the largest reservoir of stored amino acids you have is the, the the use of those amino acids to maintain blood glucose levels so gluconeogenesis and you know that's a that's a tremendous stress on the system if you're not able to maintain that level the body fights to keep that, that you know blood glucose at a very constant level so you know the in those circumstances, then you will break down and use body protein stores. If you've got sufficient energy, then you're probably not going to be in that state. And even if you're sort of at the minimal level of protein, you'll be fine. Mm. I just don't know that that would maximize the advantage of protein uh, for higher intakes. You know, where, where that stops and, you know, uh, is, is a much tougher proposition. But I'm sort of, you know, 1.6 is where I think, you, you've got a, you've squeezed a lot of benefit out of the out of the cloth, and you've got a lot of water down here. But you know, you can, and people say, "What about you know two point two? Because that's the maybe upper end." And I'm like, "Well, it's like, you know, mm -hmm. you can kind of get one less drop out, but um, you, you've got a lot of what you so, need with one point six. 
Right. So then what about the opposite case? It's it's one thing to talk about having insufficient and how much I need to get to. Once I exceed that, we talk about wasteful, but does it ever mm. become harmful? Yeah, uh, good question. I mean, so the, the, the usual uh, two things that people talk about, uh, too much protein uh, makes your blood, if you like, acidic, and it does sort of shift uh, pH. And then that causes calcium to, if you like, you know, leach out of your bones and you, incre you increase excre urinary excretion of calcium and, you know, your bones become soft. And so that's what we call it the acid-ash hypothesis. So acidic blood because of elevated protein and, and other food sources as well, for the record, um, causes, you know, this ash or this calcium to come out of your bones. That's been refuted now, you know, I think categorically, if you like debunked uh, several times over, the, the increased calcium excretion actually comes from um, increased calcium absorption. You know, calcium, as long as it's sufficient in your diet and, and, and uh, vitamin or, or vitamin maybe in, in your pronunciation <laughs> D, if they're adequate, then, you, then protein is actually, it, it's, a, it's a beneficial, a synergistically beneficial nutrient for bone. As I said, you know, bone is 40% by composition protein. So the increased urinary excretion is as a result of increased calcium uptake. So I think we can kind of dust that one off and push it, push it to the side. Uh, the, the next big one you know, that most people uh, have been classically taught if they went through any human physiology or they're trained in medicine is the protein causes you know kidney problems kidney right. failure uh -huh. um you know that, that that's a I, I would say it's about a 60 to 70 year old thesis now uh brenner is the, the the guy that came up with it uh it's a little bit of an example of what i you know you would know uh, brandolini's law is that the order of evidence taken to refute <laughs> something that's out there is 10 times the you know in, in the order of magnitude of <laughs> of what it took to get you've, it out there. You've and used still, the light version, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. I, I did. You know, it's, it's, Fair. It's, it's the Canadian way. We're, we're sort of straddling <laughs> that line. To, you know, don't offend anybody. So, yeah, believe me. Um, it, you know, and, and here we are, fast forward 60 years. And when you do the, you know, the thorough literature review and look for the evidence for that, you can't find it. So, and we've done systematic reviews and other people have as well. And, you know, and people are fond of saying, you know, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. And I'm like, yeah, but it's been 60 years and we're still looking like maybe the hypothesis was incorrect. And, and people point to an observation that they make. And, and, and it's, it's, it's true. People with chronic kidney disease who are put on lower protein diets because now you have less solute to filter, less urea, but, all, you know, they, they lower everything, less sodium less battalion, you know, everything goes down. Um, they, they live longer and their kidneys function for longer. But that doesn't mean by reverse, you mm. know, corollary causation that the protein caused the kidney failure. But it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable, like, you know, I mean, urologists unite and, and, you know, sort of bash, you know, over and over at this. And I'm like, show me the evidence that you, of causality or even association, even observational association and it's, it's pretty damn thin. So I'm beginning to think we can, you know, I, I, and why I get on these podcasts to try and tell people, I'm like, just, just show me something good. So show me, show me your, your, your best data that would mm. convince people that that's the case. You know, you're suggesting then that there's a couple of things that we know there isn't enough evidence to support 
things like it affects kidneys. Do we know if there's anything that is a result of high protein consumption? Is there any downside to it? Right. I, I mean, so the, the, I'll call it the, the, the most recent kid on the block is that higher protein uh, begets higher levels of um, hormones like insulin-like growth factor, which is, you know, it's a pro-growth hormone and pro-growth is not bad if you're, you know, a big bodybuilder guy or you're a growing child, uh, but it's not good in context of, you know, uh, overt cell growth, uncontrolled cell growth, which is, that's cancer. So the, the, the theory is, is that high protein is, is, is a causative agent in, in cancer. And, you know, that's, that's kicking around. Uh, lots of people, some very impressive science that's done on uh, short-lived uh, rodents. And when you look at the observational data, uh, because we don't have a clinical trial on it, um, in humans, it's, it's much more difficult. It's, it's very inconsistent. Let's put it that way. So, you know, I, I kind of step back a little bit and I say, like, the rodent data is impressive and the, the longevity data, just like, you know, energy caloric restriction uh, is impressive. The translatability of those observations to the human condition is, in my opinion, anyway, uh, at best shaky um, and at worst, it, it, it can't translate. And, and there are lots of other reasons you know without going too deep into it why i just i, I kind of squint a little bit and i say you're gonna have to i'm sorry you're gonna have to do a little better at convincing me and other people i think uh that higher protein begets shorter lifespan or an increased uh, risk of cancer and you know i've talked about it often enough there is a set of data um that myself and a couple of other people who are much better at doing this uh, have, got, have had an in review uh, with, I think, enough journals. I can almost call it in press now, it's, but it's been rejected several times, um, hopefully soon, uh, to sort of push back against that theory. When you do the right, I think, statistics and science, there, there really is no uh, association between protein and cancer or even you know, a cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, those types of things. But yeah, I mean, I would imagine there are dozens, if if not more confounders to account for in that kind of study. I suppose the, if, if I was to randomly select a thousand people and track them for a year and assuming they don't have any major socioeconomic things affecting diet, what would a typical person's protein intake be in the absence of forcing it because they've listened to a podcast or read an article yeah. or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, What's yeah. a normal diet giving me? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, I think most people sort of tend to settle in, and if there's a protein stat sort of theory, and this is the you know the Simpson and Rabenheimer protein leverage type hypothesis, at about sixteen to seventeen percent of energy coming from protein, and so that more to the point of you know if you cover your energy needs, you're, you're probably going to be fine. So if you have elevated energy needs because you're an athlete. And you're meeting those energy needs, then protein just mm. tends to be there. Conscious sort of decisions, mine on, on a day-to-day basis would probably be closer to about 20, maybe 22, something like that. But uh, most people, it's it's around 15 and 16. And if there's sort of you know the the wisdom of the crowd type effect, then you could say, well, that's that must be what people need, or they, they you know wouldn't engage in sort of protein-seeking behavior. I just think that that's a lot of um, you know, food guide driven, you know, this is the portion of your plate that protein occupies. And this is the portion that starch occupies and then fruits and vegetables over mm. here. It's still, you know, 
but I think the, I'll call it flexibility of, you know, we, we have in North America between Canada and the US, what they call the acceptable macronutrient distribution ranges. And these are really wide, like it's, you know, 10 to 30% from fat, 10 to 35% from protein, and, you know, 25 to 65% from carbohydrates. The devil's obviously in the details. You know, carbohydrates shouldn't be all simple sugars. Fat shouldn't be all saturated fats. And protein shouldn't be all animal source protein versus plant source protein. So within that, there are lots of ways to combine macronutrients and still live you know, and, and be very healthy. That, that's the takeaway message, I think. I always think in a, in a, in a world where... I work with a lot of um, brands around supplementation. There's a lot of talk mm. about supplementation. I think the, the number one question I want to ask you, and, and, and I don't know whether you can answer it effectively, is given what you've said, that athletes generally take in enough protein, mm -hmm. what is the role of protein supplements in strength sports and yeah. in endurance sports? I think that's probably, yeah. in other words, this business that makes millions of dollars every year in supplements um, is it really just good marketing? <laughs> yeah, 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 it's a good question. I'm going to change one thing that you said and, and replace the m for millions with B for billions in terms yeah. of the amount of money that they make. So yeah, no, no, but to your point, I think it's a, it's a good one. And, and, and I mean, supplements, and if they have a, a place in athletes' diet, it's really that they're, they're convenient. And, you know, it takes away the decision of, you know, I don't have to make, cook, prepare, you know, all I got to do, scoop, shake, drink. And, and, and that's a that's a convenience factor. The other point, that, you know, to make is that uh, if it's a protein powder, for example, it's just protein. So there is nothing else associated. There's no if, if you're if you're a low carb person and, or you're a low fat person, but it's just giving you isolated protein. And so in certain circumstances and, you know, we could wander off into the direction of aging and you know, muscle loss, for example, and talk about protein supplementation in those circumstances, that might not be a bad way to go. Or for an athlete who's training, you know, X number of miles away from their home or, or, or the facility where they can get food, maybe the protein supplementation is a convenience. The necessity of protein supplements or, or supplements maybe in general is something I might question. Um, I think you know, the important point to make for your viewers is when we've done all of, we, we've done several meta-analyses now of, uh, you know, what's the effect of protein in, in augmenting muscle mass gains. And, and it's, you know, it pains me to say this after 30 years of doing it. it <laughs> it's really small. Like, it, it, I mean, you know, 85 to 90% of the gain is made by just going to the gym. You get another little thin slice on top with protein supplementation, but it's, it's much smaller than people, you know, want to wave the flag, which makes me sort of think, you know, when people ask me questions about timing and what type of supplement and everything, and I'm like, it's just in the, that's in the details. Like this is the effect and the effect within the effect is, I mean, you'd need a couple of million people to detect it. So yeah, hmm. that's a confessional yeah, thing. You know, after 30 years, I'm like, yeah, it's not that, not that big a deal, basically. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, it's, a big statement that you're making because in effect you're questioning the validity of a big industry that is very good at marketing itself mm -hmm. um and it's not as you say it's not totally wrong because there is some evidence of some benefit but again yeah. 
sitting yep. there downing a, a supplement in a normal situation when you're living at home and, and you've got a normal diet. Um, in short, protein supplements make a very little difference. And, that, and that, does that apply both to strength and athletes and also to endurance athletes? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's some sort of some nuances to take away. Like as uh, I'm no longer an athlete, I freely admit that. I'm just a mere mortal trying to, at this point, I'm, I'm everything's on the downslope, right? So I'm trying <laughs> to, you know, mitigate that, you know, not, not, not like this, hopefully like this. Um, you know, I, I use protein as a, uh, as, a, as a supplement in my diet, mainly to control my appetite. I find if I eat that amount of protein, I, I actually don't get overly hungry and, you know, we can debate the merits of satiety around protein, but I think it's pretty conclusive that it's the most satiating of all the nutrients. But, yeah. but I also enjoy food. I, 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 I like bread, I like pasta, so, and I like rice, so I, I'm not a low-carb person, but I eat a lot less uh, you know, carbohydrates than I used to. I think from the, you know, the practicality side of the question that you pose, though, and you know, in fairness, trying to stay on track here, is that um, it's not that you know supplements are useless. It's just that the the expectation of what they will deliver in terms of you know augmentation of your physique, if you are a a bodybuilder or a weightlifter or something like that, is 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 I think has been over exaggerated, and that's a that's a marketing coup uh, over the years. And I think that that's also probably you could you know insert a number of other sports supplements there to say is that it's not going to take you from being a, you know, um, a, a low responder up to being, you know, the, the person on the front of the magazine, <laughs> it might nudge you a little bit, but it's, it's not a transformational, uh, you know, intervention. And, and I, and I would, I challenge anybody to find me a supplement that, that would take you and make that that leap. I, I, I mean, I don't think that there are many out there. Surely, like if you're up in that level, then you're probably doing everything. So because the margins become quite thin. Uh, but for most mere mortals, aka you know, like everybody else, right? <laughs> um, it's it's a small thing. So you know, resistance trained athletes, like the the, the muscle growth, the, the rate limiting um, determination of how much muscle you're growing is not generally speaking, protein, they're getting enough. Endurance athletes, you wonder, but I mean, that enhanced turnover of proteins is a real thing in endurance athletes, not just of muscle, but bone, uh, connective tissues, uh, you know, all of these things that also matter. Uh, but, you know, it, like they rehydrate, refuel, and then number three is repair. And, I, and I, it's a distant number three, and that's where the protein comes in. And, uh, you know, so long as you're getting enough, then you're not going to notice like, oh, I'm lacking protein in my diet. But if your energy intake is marginal, if your volume of exercise has been, there's been a sudden increase, then, you know, it may be that, that, that those protein requirements, you know, transitorily go up and you could benefit. But on balance, yeah. I'm going to say it's a small effect. Is the same true of, let's say, an endurance athlete who does four, five, six hours or more? and who consumes a carbohydrate protein mix as opposed to purely carbohydrates mm. during exercise when yeah, the turnover uh, is actually happening. Yeah, I, I mean, there are there's very few studies on the type of duration that you're talking about in the protein-carb uh, blends. Most people can't really, I mean, some people have a hard time with carbohydrates, but when you get that fixed out, and let's say it's 5 to 6%, 
um, in a solution, you can probably handle about 1% protein and athletes can sort of, I think can teach their gut to, to handle mm. that. Um, it may be in those situations because you're adding the, the substrate during the exercise that, you know, the, the post-exercise need to put the protein back into the system is not going to be as, as, as big for sure. I mean, it, it's all still about, you know, I mean, in, in a gross sense, protein in, you know, protein out and 80% of the protein that we excrete in a given day is, is urinary urea. So if you're putting more in, then you, yeah, you're going to produce more out, but you're also going to provide those bricks at just another time during exercise. Yeah. And I guess by extension, is there, I suppose you're saying here that people who do that exercise don't need to rush to put it back in when they finish. Yeah. So like, yeah. Well, you know, do they, is the, is the sooner the better? Uh, you know, again, this is another one of these, you know, again, 30 years ago, the, the post-exercise window, which was mm. mainly around restoration of glycogen, you know, as being some sort of critical, you know, the, the, the muscle was insulin sensitive post-exercise and you have to get the carbs into the system. Uh, and then I think the science sort of marched on and it said, well, it's not that critical. You, what you really need is, is, is enough carbohydrate within the, say, 24 hours before you're, you're going to train again. Now, if you're doing two a days, maybe it's more critical. Protein's a different uh, animal. Uh, it, it shares a little bit of physiology with carbohydrate in that the transport into muscles and et cetera is only enhanced when you, you consume protein. There's no question about that. But it's not something that has, you know, a, a rate constant of you're your immediately anabolically sensitive post-exercise, and then it just flattens out after it it, 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 it stays up for a long period of time. Uh, and I saw uh, there's a, a group, I really need to look the reference up, and they have a great analogy. Instead of saying it's a window, it's more like a, a garage door or a garage, a garage door. You know, it, it stays open, it's big, you can you can drive in there just about any time. And there's, there's, there should be no rush. Pragmatically speaking, uh, you guys know as well as I do, as much as we think elite athletes are tuned into exactly what they should be doing and they all do it, that they don't. Uh, so, you know, the, the shift in North American sports, particularly pro sports, is to try and control the athlete as much as you can. So if they come out, you know, off of the field or the, off the court or off the ice or whatever, there's a post-exercise fueling station and it'll contain uh, meals and, and food with, with protein. So you can, so these guys, they're kickstarting the recovery process right away. Yeah. We used to do that when I was with the sevens, South African sevens rugby team, every player got on the bus and there was a water bottle waiting for them with a, what was basically a protein hydrolysate mix. And they used to yeah. hate the taste. They used to hate the taste of it, but they, they, were, they weren't allowed off the bus until it was finished. So. Well, that, it's one way, you know, you've got, you've got a captive audience. I, you know, I, it's, it's interesting. You spend some time around pro sports and you think, well, these, you know, they, they, they listen to all the good stuff. These guys must, they must do it. And I'm like, you would be, I think, shocked mm. as to how few of them would they be. If you gave them the choice to be like, no, man, I'm, I'm not taking that stuff. Forget it, you know. Mm. Mm. I'm interested. Have you had any pushback from some of these big companies um, with some of the statements you've made? Have you had phone calls from the odd company saying, oh, your, your research is wrong and our research is right? <laughs> well, <laughs> threats, I, maybe? Uh, I've always received pushback, even over my entire career. So I think that <laughs> it's, it's nothing new. But, I mean, I, I think the point is um, 
some people are a little bit dismayed because, and, and I'll admit that you know you probably got it right. Is is that uh, you listen to me? 25, 30 years ago, and I would have given you a different narrative to the one I've given now. Now, fast forward to now, uh, and science marches on, and the answer to the question of what are the benefits of protein, um, and we've probably, uh, in, in we and the, you know, the Royal We, uh, our lab have contributed to some of the uh, hype, if you like, of what protein can do for you. When you do the science, and, and, and that's what I have to follow now and you know i'm at mcmaster university and we we consider ourselves the home of evidence-based medicine evidence-based practice whatever you want to call it um and so when you do the evidence-based analysis the the effect is small so and and i talk about it now people are like but you said and i'm like hold on i'm still a scientist and so i'm changing my mind like that's the way it is and and then they get they get pretty upset and some of the supplement companies i think of uh you know, I'm, I'm no longer on their their Christmas card list, but um, that, that that's okay. That that's how science works. Uh, I do when think. You're not that, helped. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. on. No, no. no, no. no I, I was going to say I do think as as time has marched on, uh, and as I've gotten older, uh, so research becomes me search. I think for people when they get older, <laughs> it probably comes around full circle, and now there is a case to be made for uh, you know increased protein supplements as people are sort of on that downslope of sarcopenia muscle loss so that's been a lot more of my, and their performance goals are, are are not gold medals but uh you know being able to stay mobile until uh, old age mm-hmm. i mean the, the aging thing is interesting i know that's a big area of your research now so i would like to go into that i was just going to make the comment that i don't think you're helped by the the, the 0.8 grams per kilogram per day recommendation because i remember talking to people who who were in the in the gyms trying to gain weight and and they mocked how low that was yeah and so it doesn't it doesn't really do any favors when you know you're saying that twice that is probably what people need to aim for the official line is 0.8 most people know that 0.8 is not enough and that's that creates a that creates a window of opportunity for a supplement company because the market yeah, people going, that's I, not I, enough no, spot on to to your point i mean I, and i think that that's that that's really you know and it's honestly, it's a disservice and, and, and people still go back to the science and everything. Uh, the, the methodology is something called nitrogen balance. And let's just say that we know a lot about nitrogen balance and the flaws in the methodology. And yet the response is when you talk to the people at the WHO, FAO and the Institute of Medicine that set this number, they say, well, we've got a lot of data from nitrogen balance. And I'm like, but you've got a lot of data from a flawed method, and yet mm. we cling to this. It's as if somebody chiseled it on a on a on a tablet and, and brought it down from the mount and said, "Thou shalt not." You know, this is this is good enough. This is this is more than enough. And I say, well, what does it mean to be in nitrogen balance? And the answer is, it means you're in nitrogen balance. There is no physiological uh, correlate as, as to what that means, and so. You know, uh, what's the health outcome on which you should base protein requirements? That's a great question. Um, it, it won't be solved by me in my lifetime. I can tell you that, but, uh, mm. but we're trying. <laughs> Speaking of lifetimes, aging is a, is a topic. I mean, that is a special population. Mm. I, th- I thought that the protein requirements were slightly lower as you got older. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so so what happens as you get older is a phenomenon that probably shares some analogies with insulin resistance 
is called anabolic resistance. So the, the normally anabolic effects of consuming protein, you know, if you get this response as a young person, you get this response as an older person. So the one way to sort of, you know, keep the system as sensitive as possible, just like insulin sensitivity is to maintain your levels of physical activity. So the more active you are, you're probably, you know, instead of being down here, if you're sedentary, you're somewhere here. I think aging is just eventually, it's going to sort of erode that response. It's just the, you know, unfortunately aging is going to happen. We've not been able to turn the clock back, but, you know, so the, the other way to compensate for a reduced sensitivity of the response is to feed people uh, more protein uh, and probably uh, proteins that are rich in one single of, uh, of the building blocks, the bricks, and, and that's an amino acid called leucine. And for reasons that we don't fully understand, but it's an evolutionarily conserved system is that systems respond to leucine per se, which is a branch chain amino acid. And it is, it's essentially like a, it's kind of like a light switch, but not a not an on-off switch. It's more like one of the dimmer switches. So you can you can turn the system on with more leucine, and you know you get to a certain point where you you could give it more and more and more leucine or protein, and you just can't can't make the lights any brighter. So uh, that's something I think that in older people is may, has has maybe been underappreciated, if if anything, maybe not on but underappreciated. Hmm. So what are you saying that that supplementation? is better for older people or it's the exercise yeah. that's more important? <laughs> I'm talking about <laughs> well, a journalist you know, perspective here. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, you know, you, you wouldn't get me on here and, and, and not go away saying that, you know, exercise is, is probably uh, uh, king, if that's the right way, or it's the number one thing that everybody should be doing. But then we know how many people do that on a regular basis. Um, the the runner-up is, is clearly nutrition. Uh, I think supplementation... So, so exercise, is, exercise is the number one yeah, way absolutely. of maintaining muscle structure. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah sure. The more active you are, and the more you know, even even you know, something as simple as going for a walk, right? Because I mean, that, that's that's gravity is still working on your legs, and you know, we got a, 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 a horrendous lesson in what it, uh, what being inactive or being on bed rest or sitting around with the with the pandemic. I mean, it was uh, you know, we we got illustrative examples of people who went through periods of muscle disuse and those are those are watershed moments in an older person's life because instead of going down like this you you all of a sudden have an it's it's a very precipitous drop and and the problem is is when you're older you have those periods is you just can't like we you did when you're young you can't bounce back so it's um it's a tough one to to get over so so the the answer to the question of you know are supplements beneficial is uh, they can be in certain situations. I don't know that it's a supplement of sort of branch chains or any, you know, something else like that, but definitely high quality proteins or even leucine per se. Uh, the catch 22 is that leucine, if you, you know, I, I, I doubt whether you've done this, but if you taste it, it's the most bitter amino mm. acid you've ever tasted. It's awful. Yeah, that's so what if the you keep sprinkling it and add it to food, it's, it's not a particularly great taste profile. Yeah, yeah. Do we do we have any uh, research? You mentioned it very briefly around um, animal protein versus plant-based um, proteins. What yeah. is the what is the research telling us about how they're they're used by the body and the benefits of both? Yeah, yeah, and and, and this is another area again that uh, over the time I've been doing this, that the my my answer to that question uh, has changed. 
And so, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, and, and it's still fundamentally true, the better quality proteins come from animal sources. So milk, eggs, or dairy, eggs, uh, meat, there's no question about that. They're, they're easier to digest. They have a better uh, essential amino acid profile. So those nine bricks that we need, there's more of them in those foods than plant proteins. They have uh, anti-nutritional uh, compounds, things that reduce the digestibility of the protein, and they tend to have less of the essential amino acids. Uh, the evidence that's come out now with isolated plant proteins. So now you take proteins from peas, you take proteins from soybeans, you take proteins from, you know, you in, insert uh, vegetable source here. Um, you've taken out all the anti-nutritional components. You, you've purified the protein. So that's no longer a concern. And it's really then resting on the essential amino acid content. And when we've fed humans these proteins, we're, you know, my response now is that the difference is pretty marginal. And uh, they're much closer in terms of what they impart from a muscle supportive or a health supportive uh, standpoint um, than I originally ever thought that they were. And I think that that's now becoming, I mean, it's pretty, it, it, you walk into the grocery store now and there are plant-based products that are, um, you know, definitely much more available than they were a lot, you know, even, even five years ago. And there's no downside, for instance, when I mean, you say they're very close in terms of how they work with the body, there's no downside necessarily of sticking with animal protein or moving across to plant-based protein. Is there any reason to change that? Not from a human health standpoint, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I, I think that, you know, what we're what people who are concerned about the quality, uh, you know, sort of issue with plant versus animal source proteins, uh, you, you really begin to look at then, you know, how much protein are you getting? And if people are getting, you know, around that 1.6, then it's, it's a non-issue. The, the quality is not a rate limit. The closer you get to your protein requirements, then protein quality does become an issue. But at the same time, and, and I can't, you know, I can't give you an intelligent answer to this or an informed answer. People will, who are much smarter than me, will say, well, from an environmental impact standpoint, plant then is, is the choice that you should make. And, and then I go, well, okay, I'm going to have to take your word for it because I, those calculations seem to me to be uh, based on a number of assumptions that I don't, I don't understand the basis of them. But maybe that's the argument that a lot of people who are plant-based, if that's the right way to say it, um, would give you. Mm. What about the other end of the spectrum from aging in, in, in kids and particularly teenagers? Uh, do the, do the yeah. requirements go up or is 1.6 enough for them also? Oh, it's, it's more than enough. I mean, the luxury of being a, a kid is uh, you're under the influence of uh, lots of hormones that are promoting growth. And so it seems like just about anything you put in your body is directed towards the, the growth process. And, you know, being the father of, of three uh, young, well, they're, they're, they're all young men now um, and watching the amount of food that they can eat, it's, it's insane. So they, they, I mean, they're expending a lot of energy. They're all still active playing sports, et cetera. Um, but they also are going through this, you know, growth spurt period of their lives. And uh, yeah, it, it, that's more than enough. It's not a population that I worry about where, where protein is, uh, 
a rate limiting uh, substrate, definitely. Food insecure regions, people on marginal protein intakes, definitely. It's an entirely different question, but most kids are, uh, you know, again, covering energy needs, mm. all good. Mm. By, by way of almost, we want to move towards wrapping up. I mean, it's been, it's been fascinating and eminently practical, I think. Do you, do you, how has the field changed? You said 25, 30 years worth. Now you've got social media. So everyone who mm. eats food is an expert in food. Sure, of course. Yeah. You must spend a great deal of your time refuting the, the, the BS you spoke of earlier. Uh, where, yeah. do you, where do you reckon we are in 10 years from now? Do you think, do you think the circle turns back towards carbs? Does it eventually find balance and common sense? Heaven forbid we get to that point. Uh, yeah. Well, balance and common sense is, uh, would be great. Uh, I, I, you know, my feeling is, is that what we're beginning to discover in a lot of these trials is, and people seem amazed by uh, inter-individual variability. And, you know, so we take a hundred people, we put them all on an exercise bike, uh, 20 people out of the hundred get, get a massive change in VO2 peak, 40 people get a sort of a mediocre mm. change. Another 40 get nothing. They don't change at all. And, you know, a small group for some bizarre reason actually go in the opposite direction or, you know, like what's happening there. And, and people are like, well, exercise is good for you. And, and the fundamental answer is, that of course it is. But for some people, it doesn't have all the beneficial effects that we think. And the question is why? So this is, you know, enter the theater of uh, multi-omic technologies and looking at genes, but not just genes that you have, how they're expressed, you know, what proteins are expressed, what metabolites results. And so the metabolome, the proteome, the transcriptome, the genome, the, you know, insert your whatever level of control, ohm, uh, the microbiome, uh, as an example. Um, the confluence of all of these, you know, massive volumes of data is, I think, going to sort of move us towards the hypothetical personalized type nutrition, if you like, uh, whether it's uh, as specific as people think that we'll be able to nail down uh, exact nutrient intakes. I, I don't think so. It's probably, uh, and without being overly jaded on the ability of uh, uh, as Mike Joyner calls it, moonshot medicine to sort of predict exactly who you're going to be. Um, the fundamental truisms are, are, are out there is that, you know, eat a varied diet, plant protein is okay. Uh, you know, animal protein, like I'm an omnivore, so unashamedly om omnivorous, um, that you can probably glaze over a lot of specific recommendations. Again, I hate to say this, if you're physically active, uh, it's the forgiver of uh, of many sins, mm. so uh, I, I'm I'm counting on that uh, right now. I uh, I enjoy what I eat, and I think that that's one thing that we've removed when we we talk about you know trying to get your precision nutrition signature is uh, you know the enjoyment of a meal and sitting down with your friends and you know maybe having a glass of wine or a beer or something like that is is maybe being lost and. And that's that's unfortunate because uh, you know that to me is uh, that's a big part of what it takes to age well as well. It's not just exercise, not just nutrition, but there's a big part of uh, social uh, that, that's involved there. Mm. But precision precision medicine, precision nutrition, whatever you want to call it, marches on, and I don't think we're going to get away from that anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, uh, if I'm thinking of this conversation now, it, it seems to me if I was to give a listener one 
recommendation or assurance it's that as long as you're sensible you're pretty much likely to be okay like there'll be people who started off listening to this thinking should i change my diet do i need more yeah. protein in my diet and so on I, it, it it sounds to me like the answer 99 out of 100 times is no unless there's something clearly that you're doing that's unusual in your diet sensible yeah. equals fine yeah sense is uh it, it, you know sometimes in short supply i think that there's a tendency uh for the uh the people out on social media you know you've got to distinguish yourself uh from the masses and if the masses are saying you know this is sort of the you know varied mixed diet and people go oh you know that we we did that for 20 years and the answer is we talked about it but very few did it and you know the battleground if you want to draw one is not carbs versus fats or proteins it's you know real whole foods versus contrived processed foods mm. and, and and i think that that's a battle worth worth, worth fighting for sure but uh there's there's no monopoly on common sense and so social media people need to have a shtick to uh you know to create a, <laughs> something that is different and it distinguishes them from from just the mainstream yeah yeah absolutely there's, there's always this belief to some extent when we talk about um i mean things that people always say if you're a vegetarian for instance you are going to be short of protein is, mm. is that is that something that we've done any sort of research into vegetarians for instance because obviously in sport there's a lot of there's a big move towards vegetarianism in sport yeah i i mean to the to to your point i mean it's it, you know the usual uh suspects with vegetarian diets are you're going to be deficient in iron because you don't have uh animal source protein protein usually for meat uh you might be deficient in zinc and you're going to be low in protein and the short answer is is that when, you know it, just like uh, omnivorous um, eating athletes or omnivores, uh, vegetarians, you, you could be a good vegetarian. In other words, you're pretty judicious about how you pick your food, or you can be a crappy vegetarian. You know, if you, if you drink a Diet Coke and eat a slice of bread or a slice of toast with butter on it, you're still, a, you're still a vegan vegetarian, but it's not a great fueling strategy if you're running, you know, a hundred miles a week. So uh, chances are is that you know these these vegan vegetarian athletes have fought and, and and are conscientious about what they eat some are not but then the same is true of of omnivorous athletes as well so on balance if you ask me no vegan or vegetarian athletes are not deficient in are some absolutely but the same is true of omnivores you know, in a world full of misinformation and, and, and nonsense about this sort of stuff, someone listening to this says, right, I'm, I'm all on board with common sense. I'm going to do what I've been doing with confidence now, but I do want to know more detail. Aside from reading academic papers, where in your experience have you found to be the best places to go to learn more about this? Yeah, uh, social media, and, you know, I don't need to tell you, uh, can be great. Uh, and at the same time, it, it, it's, it can be awful. Uh, there are some people that I think that are on social media uh, that are worth a follow because what they say is, is good information. Um, and you can learn. Uh, I think that there's an unprecedented time now where you can seek out resources and probably find people who are giving. The hard part is deciphering the, finding the signal in the noise. It's becoming mm -hmm. infinitely more challenging when you know uh, when i started grad school i would read five different journals and that's where i got 80 plus percent of my information now that's that's closer to 
well, I would say it's not even 25, like more like 50 journals. So a tenfold increase in 25 years. And I, I have to rely on students to, you know, find papers for me to say, did you see this? Did you see this? And I'm because I, I, there's no way I can keep up. Um, so even even in my own field, it's becoming much more challenging. So, it, it, you know, from the real world perspective, really tough to do. But uh, yeah, there are a few folks out there that I think uh, give good information. Uh, it's just about finding them. Yeah, you can you can start listeners by going to Twitter and looking up Macken Prof. That's M-A-C-K-I-N-Prof, M-A-C-K-I-N-Prof, P-R-O-F. And that is, of course, Stuart Sandal. So yeah, you got start it. there and, and, and then look who Stuart <laughs> follows and you'll know who the good ones are. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so, perhaps, thanks very much for your time. It's been fascinating just talking to you about something that I think for many people is a very confusing area of their, of their sports nutrition. I think it's been some very practical advice you've given us today. So thank you very much for that. Oh, my, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started